Join us and our amazing, surprising Missing Witches Coven at patreon.com slash missingwitches. You aren't being a proper woman, therefore you must be a witch. You must be a witch. Hi everybody and welcome to another episode of the Missing Witches Podcast. I'm laughing because Vin... And I just spoke for about like 10, 15 minutes before I realized that we weren't actually recording. <laughs> so if you hear some kind of something in my voice, it's because in my mind, I'm like, Amy, oh my goodness, Amy. But I think we can get it back. I think we can recapture <laughs> the magic. <laughs> we're good. We're good. We're good. We're good. Thank you so much, Vin Caponegro, for being with us today in Circle and for your patience in repeating all of the golden treasures that you laid down in the last 10, 15 minutes. (laughs) I really appreciate you being here. And, you know, our friend Christina Cleveland, uh, she wrote the book God is a Black Woman and in her imagination of God, um, this God is welcoming. Christina calls it my sacred mess. So I'm going to be <laughs> allowing like that and just be okay with my sacred mess as we go forward. Into this. Listen, I'm so excited to be here. Um, love you. Love the podcast. Love the book. I'm like, Having an extra 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's not the worst. Yeah. It's a blessing. (laughs) It is a blessing. You know, and sometimes we find that so much in our lives that the things that go wrong, sometimes we get the things that go really right, you know? And so I want to talk to you about so many things. (laughs) I want to talk about snake hair press. But first... (laughs) Um, when I was reading about you, (laughs) this is going to happen a lot when I repeat questions because my brain is like already moved on like a Russian futurist. (laughs) Okay. So years ago, you were involved in WITCH Chicago, you were a co-founder. Now, for those of our listeners who don't know what WITCH is, and I say it like that to distinguish it from all us witches, um, was an activist group in the 60s, a feminist activist group, and WITCH stood for Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell. Can you tell our listeners about your decision to co-found and and to use this name yeah um so in um sometime in 2015 um i had watched um she's beautiful when she's angry uh the documentary and i had first found out about um this group witch um and my immediate reaction was like oh my god how do they not know that this group existed it was so amazing and i just sort of like started researching into like every single thing i could find about them um, and at that time, two of my friends, um, uh, Isimile Lara Ramos and Chiara Gallimberti, and I decided that we would sort of host these um, rituals outside in public spaces as a sort of reinterpretation of which, where we would take some of the, the language that they were using um, from their manifesto and write our own manifesto that was sort of updated for um, our our uses, um, 
giving homage to the original, but also like noting the very different things that we were, the different places that the world was in and the differences we are as, you know, human beings. Um, and we would stage certain rituals where we would let people know where we were going to be and what sort of topic we were going to be talking about. And we would show up with um, like a ritual already pre-planned pre um, and a spell that we could, we would all say together. Um, we would like light candles and incense and each ritual had a sort of talisman that somehow connected to what we were, um, what we were talking about. So we did one for affordable housing in our neighborhood and sort of called out the developers that were there um, buying up all of the homes and then turning them into luxury condos um, and sort of gentrifying the neighborhood and pushing out people who had been there for years. Um, it was a neighborhood that we had all lived in. Um, ACMLA, I think for like 15 years or something had, had been in that spot. Um, and we created this um, like cinder block that actually spray painted silver. It was a clay, it was unfired clay cinder block that I had made and then spray painted silver. And at the end of it, we smashed it so that everyone could take home um, a piece of it with them. And then every, every ritual that we um, sort of facilitated, people had the opportunity to like speak about how they were feeling about the certain thing or like voice um, the sort of like personal experience that they had with it. And then we, we always wrote down experiences too and left them sort of taped up with the remnants of the ritual that we had left behind. So some people came intentionally to see us, but we also did them in like really public places so that people would sort of see that we were all gathered and doing something and they would join in too. So like families, tourist families in downtown Chicago with like their kids would come or like people would just be like, what is going on here? Um, and then we got to explain not only like, were we talking about gentrification or um, the fundamental right to education or abortion rights? Um, and then also talk about, you know, which itself and like why we were doing what we were doing. And there's a, a quote from the Witch Chicago manifesto that I would love for you to respond to. Um, witches were the first guerrilla warriors and resistance fighters. Yeah, so the manifesto um, we wrote collectively, also with like, um, we had found the, I, I believe it was from the New York chapter of which the original chapter, um, because there were, um, there were a number of them like all over the country, but the Chicago one and the New York one were very um, sort of, they did a lot of actions. I, I think it was, it came from New York. Um, but just using the sort of, as a reference point, like the language that they were already engaged in and then thinking about the history of witches and them really as the the type of, the, the, the person in the community that is looking out for the people who um, need the most help, right? Like they're providing people with herbal care or, you know, they're, they're taking away the evil eye or they're, you know, like they're using talismans to like, you know, they're the ones that are looking out for people. Um, and oftentimes doing it in a way where um, the people in their community may know that they're the ones to, to go to, but they're not sort of um, 
broadcasting. <laughs> they were not using the word witch um, because, you know, even to this day, um, depending on where you are, that can be a very dangerous thing for like people's physical safeties. So thinking about the sort of the witch hiding in the forest or like, you know, waiting until the right moment to strike, um, being, you know, like very community minded and like there to provide services, but also not making it really about themselves, you know, like making it more about like, how can I quietly help the people that need to be helped? That, that rings of the printing press too, right? <laughs> Especially what, what snake hair does. Um, you might do the work in isolation, the actual work mm -hmm. of it, but you're gathering and then exporting for lack of a better word, you know, you're in, in collaboration Mm -hmm. with the community. I do want to say, listeners, um, because you brought up uh, She's Beautiful When She's Angry, um, you can watch it for free on YouTube. It's a great documentary. She's Beautiful When She's Angry. If you're listening right now, you can go find it on YouTube. Otherwise, I will put a link in the show notes because like I say, you can watch it for free on YouTube and it's great. Mm -hmm. That said, um, when I spoke to Star Goody, she told me that the reason that they started their feminist newspaper in the 60s was because she, they each, um, a group of women lived in a house and the only real rule was that each one of them had to have a room of one's own. And so, you know, they were just fostering each other and fostering and fostering. And one of them happened to have a, a printing press, super old school, you know, you put the letters in the Uppercase, lowercase, that's where we get that, by the way. People, uppercase, <laughs> lowercase letters, fascinating. Anyway, so that was the reason they started their, their feminist newspaper was because one of them happened to have a printing press. So again, I'll ask this question again. Listeners, you've only heard it once. <laughs> First of all, I want to know how you got into printing, but also I just want you to go off on the history of the printing press and your perspective and and all of that, like the cultural context and absolute evolution of all of that. Printing press, snake hair press. <laughs> yeah, so um, just like a, a little bit of context again, like my, um, I grew up triangulated between New York City and Philly um, in a small city called Easton, which was colonized really early on um, from lands like literally stolen from the Lenape Lenape. There's like docu documentation that like it was, it was, very clearly taken. <laughs> um, and um, when I went to college, I went right outside um, of Philadelphia to Bryn Mawr, um, which is a very sort of academic place, even though I was taking, I was doing a lot of art classes um, as a kid and like I was a very artistic child, it was never even a consideration that I would go into art for my academic career. Um, and plus, like, I was one of the people, <laughs> I was like, we laugh about this, I laugh about this with my mom, because I was like, I'm never, I'm like, I can't draw like a chair, or like a person or a sunset, right? I was the kind of kid who was like collecting rocks and random garbage and making like sculptures, um, <laughs> or just like wrapping things and like, doing like, yeah, doing lots of like, quote unquote, like, crafting projects. Um, and getting into arguments with my like high school art teachers about like, does, do I need to know how to draw a chair? Turns out I didn't, but like, <laughs> you know, so I, I, when I went to school, um, 
art was not a, it was not something that was even a consideration of mine um, for like a lot of different reasons. I think that um, one of them was being so discouraged by art teachers um, as someone who was um, sort of creating work that was not sort of valued in um, in the way that they, they value artwork. Um, and also because I think that it just wasn't seen as like a career choice that um, was realistic. You know, like um, growing up like single mother, two kids, like my grandmother worked at a factory. My mom was a secretary um, until she got a job at a candy company, which um, when I was in high school, they put her through college. So, and so her, her degree is in like HR management or something, you know, it's like, so the idea that I could go for art was just like, it wasn't a thing. Like no one was going to be okay with that. Um, so we can fast forward, like my, the second semester of my junior year, I go abroad, I go to Rome. Um, and I took my first printmaking class and my brain just sort of like exploded, right? Like I was like, oh my God, this is, I don't need to learn how to, I don't need to know how to draw. <laughs> like It doesn't matter if I can't do this thing. Um, I can still create really, um, really thoughtful and effective art pieces. Um, and I really liked the idea of the multiple, like as soon as it um, entered into my consciousness, I was like, oh, these are not precious. Like I can, trade them with friends. I can, you know, like I can make a hundred of them and give them away. Like that became something that was really important to me. Um, especially in high school, I was doing a lot of like poetry and writing and I was already making zines. So the idea of being able to make something um, that sort of combined those two things became really interesting to me. So I, um, went from political science to political theory to aesthetics, and then finally ended up in art history, which like everyone in my family laughed about because it's not really <laughs> that useful either, but it was not studio art. <laughs> so like that was, um, and then I moved to Chicago um, to get an MFA at the School of the Art Institute. So uh, that in printmaking, so that was sort of my like trajectory. At a certain point I was like, there's no denying this. This is the thing that um, that's giving me life. Like this is the thing that I want to dedicate my life to. Um, so I was in Chicago for about ten years. Um, you know, like I'm an interdisciplinary artist. So like printmaking is sort of like a, a a small part of it. Like I also do a lot of like video work and installations and lead like ritual performances with people. Um, but it all sort of ties into this idea of um, accessibility um, and um, the sort of non-preciousness of something, right? Like I make rituals that get put on the internet and like books that cost $7 and are made in like the hundreds. Um, so that's like a sort of like fundamental, um, fundamental thing. So I was in Chicago for 10 years. And um, when I moved to Boston, I suddenly had no place to print because in, in Chicago, there's like a million, there's not a million, there's a couple um, community print shops, which are like amazing. There's like, you can go and you can rent time. And as long as you know what you're doing, like it's, it's great. And you can take classes and everything, but um, there's not a single one of those in the Boston area. In Providence, you can find a place to print, but in Boston, you have to be connected to a school. 
Um, and it was also the first time in 10 years that I wasn't teaching at a school. Like I wasn't adjuncting. Uh, so like I came here with the intention of, oh, I'll just, I'll find um, a place to teach and it'll be fine. And that didn't happen for four and a half years. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, so I found myself without a studio space for the first time in 10 years, um, without access to um, any sort of printmaking equipment. And in um, like a thousand square foot apartment um, with an, a, an office um, and a kitchen table. And I was like, okay, uh, I'm just gonna buy the shittiest laser printer I can find. And I'm gonna start a press. <laughs> Like, um, I think right before I had left, like I had, I had been making zines and artist books for, you know, 15, 15 years at that point over that. Um, but I had taken a big break from them as like a, a, a publishing model. Like I wasn't publishing things. Uh, but right before I left Chicago, one of the very last projects I did, I did with my partner, and it was a zine called, um, sort of like a tongue in cheek. It was called White Men Are the Worst, which I mean, like if I had, if I were gonna write it now, I probably would choose different language, but like it is a funny, with all these microaggressions that white men had um, sort of inflicted upon me. And I, I, I wrote about them and my partner who is a white man um, did all the, the illustration for them. Uh, and we went to a publisher's fair and that was the only zine that we brought. And we just had sheets where people could write out their, their own experiences with white men. And we like taped them all up, um, which as you can imagine was like a total shit show. Cause you have people like saying like very real hurtful things, like, and like very sort of like, um, just like an unloading for people because it was anonymous. Like when she wrote it, you could put it up and walk away. And then also all of this sort of like defensive feelings that were coming up from other people. And there was like arguing on the board and like, <laughs> um, that was like the project that I, the last project I did before I left Chicago. Um, and we did that a couple of times. The zine, we um, generated money for, um, Oh, what's it called now? It used to be called Chicago Rape Crisis Center, but they've changed their name and I can't, Resilience, it's called Resilience now. So we raised, all the money went, went to them. Um, and we did it a few times and documented all of the responses that people left. Um, and there's an archive of them on the internet. And then we, I took all of the physical responses and we sort of, um, I lit them on fire. Like we just sort of like released all of it into the, into the ether. Um, so you can still go and read the responses, but all the physical ones are, all, the, all of that energy is gone. Um, yeah, so that was like the first project that we did uh, where I started thinking like, okay, I could really, I could really do this. Uh, and then um, I was printing things in other places. Like I would go to residencies and I would use their, their equipment to print. Um, and then in, um, I want to say fall of 2019, I want to say it was like the Virgo new moon. I can't remember now off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> I think, I think it was the Virgo 
new me. I put an intention out. I was like, I want, and I wrote it down. I have it framed in the office now where it's like, I want to find a prep. I want to find a risograph that is not too far away and in good working order and will allow me to publish sort of radical, anti-capitalist, anarchist, feminist, anti-racist things and I can put out into the universe and also um, sort of generate some money for causes that I um, really loved. And uh, it's like two and a half months later, found one in New Inn. So like a 30 minute ride from where I am at a at a church that was getting rid of it. So I rescued my risograph from the church. We love a church bizarre. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Cleansed her, gave her all the purifications because who knows what she was doing before like we got our hands on her. Um, We named her Octavia after Octavia Butler. Um, And that really sort of like jump-started the process. During COVID, like I'm in an office right now, which is like amazing. Um, but during COVID up until literally a week ago, I was in the kitchen. So like the risograph, like I was working on the dining room table, the risograph was right next to me. And it wasn't until this past week that like, I've been able to move into this room because my partner is now back at work. Um, which is like amazing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so like the room of one's own I'm like yes I am no longer in the living room making all of this which was like you know a, a communal space only shared by two people and three cats but the difference of being able to close the door is enormous <laughs> it's just so lovely I can't <laughs> and I was thinking about Virginia Woolf the whole time I was like I'm getting back my room I'm getting- <laughs> um yeah. Oh, and one of the first things we published actually was Witches in Print. So in, um, I can't remember, all the years are blending together now. I'm like, the last two years have been such like a, a mic phone. <laughs> like, totally. I have no idea what year this was in. Totally. Sometime in the past two or three years, we'll say. Yes. Um, so sometime, <laughs> um, the Women's Museum of California asked me to write a blog post for them. And I decided, I was like, oh, like, I'll do something like Halloween themed. It's my favorite holiday for like obvious reasons. You know, like I, I love, I love Halloween. Um, and I started looking into um, the history of witches and the printing press. And that was one of the first things that we, for scenes that I created was, originally it was a blog post. And then I did, um, I presented the research at um, an academic conference and then I was like, you know what, this should really be a zine. And that was one of the, one of the first like official snake hair um, productions. Um, So yeah, the printing press is something that like, I, I feel really strongly about because it's often sort of, we often see it as like this like great liberator, right? Like there's this famous um letterpress that um this print that's the people's foe the tyrants the tyrants foe the people's friend um and you see all the time like the there's i think honolulu printmakers made the this machine kills fascists and it's the it's a printing press um which is like the the take on like the guitar the woody guthrie guitar um 
And I just like constantly have to remind my students that like the printing press is not always used for good. You know, like in its inception, the printing press played a massive role in the witch trials and was responsible for the deaths of like innumerable women and people who did not fit into society's sort of like expectations. Like it was used to, to intentionally spread propaganda um, and continues to be used in that way. Um, so it's really like the printing press is not an, it's not a, it's not always like a marker for good. You know, like a lot of times we see all the amazing things that come out of like um, other or like marginalized groups when they have access to printing presses, right? Like you see like the Black Panther newsletters and like the Sea Red Women's Workshop posters and all of that is obviously great. Um, but there's also, we have to pay attention to like who is actually behind the presses and who has that power. Um, and for a really long time, the church had that power and really rich noble men had that power. And they were the ones that had the printing presses. <laughs> so like it was used in a way that um, in its inception was like very, very harmful. Um, and it's only now that, um, you know, like that more people have access to sort of equipment like this um, or that the means of production, you know, to, to put things out into the world in their own voices, with their own words, um, that the sort of world of printmaking is able to sort of better reflect how people actually live, you know? It's not just um, Martin Luther <laughs> talking shit on the Catholic church, which was another like huge part of early printing, you know? Yeah, and, and Gutenberg, the inventor, is sort of almost more associated with the Bible now than even with the machine, right? Just to speak to your point of this. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, it's also Gutenberg, like, took technology. It's another, like, took in, technology that was, like, readily available in Asian countries who had been doing printmaking on, like, a massive scale for hundreds of, if not thousands of years, and then took ownership of it. It was like, I created I this. I invented this. <laughs> He's known as the inventor of it, when in reality, mm. that's just like not the case. Like we don't have the documentation, but we know that they were printing presses in Japan and in China well before Gutenberg decided that he was going to make one with his wine bar olive oil barrel or whatever. <laughs> but... <laughs> I love your background. Um in that you, it seems to me that Snake Hair Press sort of exists at this intersection between like a poli-sci degree and an MFA, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like there's no, yeah. shy, there's no shying away. Um, you know, one of your mottos is like pro-slut, anti-cop, like ACAB is like <laughs> at the beginning of your bio. So uh, like, why is it so important to you? Let me ask it this way, because I always get a fascinating answer to this question. What radicalized you? Oof. You know, I have thought about that a lot. And I, I think I have to, I think it was probably 9-11. I was in high school as a senior in high school with, you know, like being an hour and a half away from New York, a ton of my friends went to New York for school and just like watching everything that was happening on TV. And I was actually, um, I was on the school paper 
and I wrote an article about <laughs> how like we shouldn't really be surprised that this happened because we have been in these countries destabilizing things um and like this is retribution for the things that we have been doing to them for decades um it was not well received they published it but it was not a well received article um actually i think the first time that we've ever the 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 newspaper ever got hate mail like i got i have at home at my mom's house somewhere i have like a collection of hate mail from the school newspaper <laughs> <laughs> It was just like a little too much with all like the patriotism and propaganda that happened after 9-11. Um, having anyone be like, hey, like maybe we should be expecting some retaliation for the the things that we're doing um, in the rest of the world was not um, the high schoolers, the people I was in high school with were not ready to receive that kind of um, information. But I think it's sort of point, like I have a really hard time um, being in the middle of anything. I mean, it's either like it's all or nothing. Like it's a very sort of like, uh, um, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability and I'm going to go, I'm going to say exactly what I mean. And I'm going to, I may have a roundabout way of doing it, but there's no sort of shying away from some, from some difficult truths, you know? And there's a lot of growing that happens with that. Like it's it's sometimes scary because, you know, things I thought or said 10 years ago, the way that, you know, like people change and grow and, uh, you know, like evolve. So I think that there's, um, there's two sides to it, right? Like there's, yes, I, with snake hair especially, we're, oh, it's always very sort of um, honest and upfront and um, sort of, not shying away from from difficult conversations but I think part of that is because I don't really know any other way to be you know like it's not a it's not a choice so much as it's a like I'm not sitting there thinking oh like maybe I should tone this down a little bit I do have conversations my partner will read things and be like are you sure you want to <laughs> say that in this way so like I do get checked a little bit because I am you know which is good. It's, it's good and it's healthy to get, to get checked. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Like I'm an Aquarius sign, Leo moon, Libra rising with an Aquarius Mercury too. So I don't know what that, like that sort of like constant back and forth makes for a difficult, <laughs> difficult um, human being who's like constantly trying to walk through the world and cause like the least amount of harm as possible you know like harm to others harm to the environment harm to myself like how do i um leave the world a better place than it was when i stepped into it so how did you land on pro slut anti-cop as like an operational <laughs> motto <laughs> you know, it's funny i actually went to we were we were at an art book fair and we were put in like a corner that was like kind of um dark and I ran across the street to find to try and find like a light that I could like use batteries on and I found one of those like little like light like ones where you have like it's um you have like little letters that you put in to like form something and I was like what can I write and like that's nine ten letters across and ten letters across and I don't know it just like popped into my head and I was like all right I guess this is what our sign's gonna say 
you know, and we already had a few things that are like similar to that, <laughs> but maybe not as succinct, <laughs> but it just, it just came as a download. And I was like, all right, here, I guess this is our new slogan. <laughs> <laughs> and how about, how about the naming? I mean, obviously snake hair for me anyway, conjures Medusa. Is it mm -hmm. Medusa? Yeah, obviously like a, a, symbol of feminism and witchcraft and righteous anger <laughs> yeah. yes absolutely I mean I love I've always loved mythology and it, it took a um a big step away from it for a long time because I think in the same I did the same with like like some of the, like the ritual Catholicism that I was raised with too because it was just like so patriarchal and so messed up <laughs> Um, and it's only been maybe within like the last 10 years that I've found ways to um, sort of take the pieces that make sense to me um, and look further back and say, oh, like how was, how did um, sort of white supremacy and patriarchy and misogyny influence these things? And how can I sort of take a step back to maybe what was happening before that, you know, um, and sort of acknowledge the ways that these um, histories have changed or histories have been rewritten, you know? Um, so Medusa is like a very, uh, you know, like I, I'm, I'm a huge Medusa fan, <laughs> huge Gorgon fan. Um, so that that's sort of where the name, the name came from. Can you talk a little bit about the overlap between ritual and performance? You talked about it a bit with WITCH Chicago mm -hmm. and, you know, the smashing of things you know, um, to combat gentrification. But can you talk about it more broadly and less specifically, like as a theory? Yeah, I mean, I think that they're, they're so connected. They're so like deeply intertwined for me. Um, you know, like I grew up in a household that was um, Sicilian and Italian American full of Catholicism, but also like Italians have a way of being Catholic while also being very pagan about it. You know, like my grandmother believed fully in Jesus, but also that like people come back as dead birds. And, you know, like there's, there's all of these like layers, layers to it, you know? Um, like I remember being like 12 and I, I never really got into Catholicism. Like that was not my jam. But I remember being like 12 in history class and then like reading the history book and like, oh, it was like a real, like I distinctly remember. I was like, oh, um, that's a real person. I thought this was like all, all made up, <laughs> like, I guess. Um, but with the sort of, with going to church and going to catechism classes and all of that, like you see all of this ritual and all of this performance that we know that, that I know now didn't know then was like taken from earlier versions of it and more pagan sort of um, practices and then changed into what became the Catholic church and all of its like horrific atrocities that it has created across the globe. Um, so growing up, there was a lot of ritual in everything not just religiously, but like you think about like the rituals of cooking and then of like cooking was a huge one, obviously for an Italian American family. It's like that was cooking and eating and just sort of like being together. It's another really big one. Um, and for a long time, 
I sort of tapped those two places like um, artistically separate. Um, and I don't, I'm, I think it's probably just like um, at a certain point you realize that, or at least I did, that like the, the sort of like artificial line that I had drawn between what's an artistic practice and what's just like a, a, another type of practice. Like what, what's like my, what, what, what are the things I'm ritualizing? Um, that it's a really arbitrary line that I've created and that binary wasn't, it's not serving me, you know? So like dipping in here and here, sort of bringing, bringing sort of, bringing some of like the, the, the rituals that I had already been doing into the performance pieces um, was something that came slowly, but very naturally. Um, and then it just sort of, they've intermeshed in a way that, um, that I think feels really good. Like it feels very, um, I don't know, like they, they have a very good relationship with each other. So I have a hard time separating them. I don't know if I even could separate them back out now if I wanted to, you know. Um, but a lot of them are like things that either like I grew up around or I've just like taken on slowly over the last like 15 years. And you brought it up a couple times. Um, first that you were in Rome when you were William Blake style bestowed <laughs> with a, a new mode uh -huh. <laughs> in, a, in a dream. And I know you recently returned to your, um, your heritage is Italian, mm -hmm. as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. You returned to Sicily and to Italy. Can you tell us a little bit about that trip and, and your connection to this culture? I mean, beyond what you just talked about. Yeah, I mean, my, so my great grandparents, um, came from Campania, Calabria, and um, Sicily. So um, uh, in 2018, I had been to Italy a couple times for, for various projects and things, um, but I'd never been to Sicily. And in 2018, I went to um, a residency, an artist residency in Tusa, which is um, maybe like, 10 kilometers from my, one of my ancestral villages. So like where my Nona's parents came from, like you, I could like see it from where I was standing, you know, like there's like a mountain and then a valley and a mountain. I could like just gaze at it. Um, and it was a really sort of transformative moment for me, just like being in that land feeling like there's, there's just like a feeling that I got where I was just like, wow, like it's, it just felt so right there for me. Um, I did not, I have family that still lives in Sicily that did not particularly like me, which is really difficult. <laughs> I think they just like got one look at me. Like they like my, my, my cousins had been before and they're very sort of like conservative, traditional, like they've married, have kids, real jobs, you know, like a real air quote job, you know, like they're, they're just like a different, they live different lives um, and they all got along really well. And they took one look at me and they were just like, we don't know what to do with you. We're going to run away. <laughs> so like that part of it was really difficult, you know, like to come to terms with the fact that you have family in this place that doesn't want to have anything to do with you because you're outside of what they 
um, feel like is okay. <laughs> um, but I just recently got to go back um, and is another sort of like amazing transformative experience where got to travel a little bit in parts of the island I hadn't been on. And then I got to um, participate in this sort of like group workshop where we learned sort of the magical medicinal um, roles of certain plants of the island and went to all of these sort of like religious sites and it with like 10 amazing other human beings who were like invested in this sort of like ancestral reclamation and how to like you know, like obviously all of us on, on my trip were American, but how do we go and sort of acknowledge that so many, like millions of people left Southern Italy and Sicily in, you know, the late 18, early 1900s and always intended to go back, you know, like their goal was to make enough money to buy a spot of land so that their family could return um, and then in the early 1920s, this, the so-called United States needed workers so badly to sort of run this capitalist machine that we were creating um, that they trapped them here. They, they wrote new laws. They said, we, we don't really want you, but since you're here, now you can't go back. Um, or you can go back, but you can never come back. So like, they created this structure where um, people weren't able to return, even if that had been their intention. Um, and it's like, my mom didn't get to go back, but like we are of the generation, like I'm almost 40 years old, um, being able to really reclaim some of that ancestry, um, which was really ingrained. Like I grew up in an enclave, so it's it was surrounded by Italians all the time, <laughs> you know, and, and actually surrounded by people who, even though like my grandmother was born here, um, surrounded from people who came from their same villages in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. So like people who were born in Italy, grew, I, I grew up around them. So it was a very, um, it's sort, of, sort of very formative um, experiences in a lot of ways. And then to get to go back, um, learn all of these things, visit all these new places. And then I got to spend a week at the artist residency just writing. So um, overlooking like this beautiful vista, <laughs> you know, I'm like going every morning to get my groceries and to chat with the people at the cafe and then just like coming back and really having the time to, to, to focus on this writing project that I've been working on for um, a couple of years. It's just the privilege to be able to do that. Um, yeah, that was amazing. So you you publish your own work, but I definitely <clears throat> don't want to even begin to wrap up until we dive into occult studies. And specifically, <laughs> once again, I want to thank you for publishing the BioArt Coven Manifesto. So can you talk about this, this gathering of uh of occult studies you're two yeah. volumes so far there's two so far yeah so part of what I do I do publish a lot of my own um writing and rituals and spells and I also publish um different so one of the collaborators in which is a is an amazing poet published one of her chapbooks and 
um, I had a pen pal who's incarcerated and we published some of his drawings as a way to like help him sort of get on his feet because he's on parole now. Um, and there's a few other projects that I, I've done or in the works with like people who, um, who sort of align with our core values and who maybe wouldn't have the opportunities to publish something or to get it out into the world um, if not for working with us. And it's a really sort of lovely process for me too, because it's a way where um, I get to publish something, I get to collaborate with someone to decide like what, what, what way will best represent the work that they've created. Um, and then after production costs, we split the profits 50-50, which is really important to me. Because um, a lot of things that you give your work to, like as an artist, I've submitted things to so many places and they're like, here's one copy. And I'm like, but what, but what are you doing with all of this extra, with, with all of the money that's being generated from this? So um, all the profits get split 50-50. And then we always, um, as part of Snake Hair, some percentage off the top of everything goes to an organization, um, whether it's Black and Pink or the Trans Emergency Fund, or there's a number of places, national bailout we give to you. Um, so whoever I'm collaborating with chooses the organization that, um, that their publication is helping to fund. Um, occult Studies works a little differently because there's, I think there were 35 people in the first one um, and 20 in the second. Um, we got submissions from all over the world, which was really exciting. Um, the first issue, um, we accidentally made the call for um, January of, I think that all the submissions were due in January of 2020, but the theme of it was just unbeknownst to us. Um, I chose apocalypse as the, <laughs> the sort of um, the theme for the first issue. So I ended up printing it in um, March and April of 2020, like right at the beginning of um, you know, like our awareness of COVID and well, everyone was in lockdown and it's like a really, it was a lot. Uh, <laughs> so um, yeah, and then the next one um, we did the call and um, you know, I, I want to be able to do one every year. Um, they are really draining um just like physically and emotionally um you know I say like we a lot for snake hair when, when snake hair started out it really was like a 50 50 thing with me and my partner and as it sort of changed and evolved and grown like my partner who's a graphic designer and artist in his own right and like an amazing human being copy editor <laughs> problem solver designer really does not really do anything with snake hair anymore aside from like sit and help me at art book fairs and like sometimes help judge my layouts um but like 90% of it 99% of it is me um so collecting all of the submissions editing things laying out the zine printing it and then mailing it um it takes it just takes a lot of like energy for for one person to do so the goal is once a year, once every other year. Um, and I end up getting um, way more submissions than, than, I can, um, than I can ever put to a book. <laughs> and the, with, with occult studies too, because there's so many people, um, what we do is I give them copies. I think 
I gave the last one, um, we did, I did two copies and then um, they get a snake hair gift. So like one of our, our zines, they get to choose which one they want. Um, and then we'll all split the profits between all 20 of us if I ever see any profits. <laughs> so, so we'll see, the opportunity is there, <laughs> but um, we'll, we'll see if that happens. I have a feeling it's gonna be a very small, small PayPal deposit <laughs> for somebody. Yeah, we used to um, <clears throat> We used to do this like sort of fly-by-night show. We called it like a comedy punk cabaret kind of thing and uh and same thing we would pass the hat and then we would divide it up equally it didn't matter who you were uh-huh. and this one it was a duo they were like a little electronic duo and I, we paid them like four dollars and 25 cents <laughs> or whatever it was and they were so happy they were literally like we have never been played to make paid to make music before this is the first time that we actually like have bus fare home <laughs> from the gig even so don't demean the small the small PayPal transactions because just getting paid to make art or to write obviously we need to do a better job like you're doing of paying contributors to things but never ever demean the small PayPal transaction for sure <laughs> I, I don't mean to demean I'm also like I'm very as someone who gives a lot of work to things that I believe in just like writing and and art and whatever like I I know that people would give us things without the expectation of payment but it feels really important to me to even if it is four dollars to make sure it's an equitable exchange that like we are participating in something where you're like I don't know if I will ever be able to make snake hair my full-time job you know, like right now I have up until recently, I had three, three part-time jobs, you know, snake hair being one of them. Um, but for me, knowing that the people who are contributing to the, the things that are being published by the press, knowing that they, um, are at least getting a, a piece of what their labor <laughs> <laughs> of of the the monetary value of their labor um is important to me and that's sort of the unfortunate situation of living steeped in capitalism is that yeah. you know you have to make choices between yeah. doing the right thing I'll use scare quotes even though I don't think I need them doing the right thing and paying people fairly and properly and also like you say you know making your labor of love something that can actually sustain your life I think a lot yeah. of us are on that tightrope <laughs> right now and if we could yeah. if we could eat validation and good feelings then <laughs> yeah. it would be no problem right <laughs> yeah yeah I mean I've done projects before where I've like crowdfunded and made sure that like everyone got paid like a certain amount of money for their for their writing and it's just the amount of energy that things like that take it's just really it's really hard <laughs> because you know it's just, it's just really hard but I do think it's important you know um so the the second volume that we did was um is revolution and um so taking sort of um building on the apocalypse and being like, how can I, <laughs> the apocalypse was an accidental, coincidental, you know, um, <laughs> theme for the time. 
but um, then thinking about like, how can we, how can we acknowledge all of the changes that have happened and all of the, the sort of necessary, um, the necessary things that, the, the the different things people have done to make um, the sort of really horrible and ongoing trauma of the world that we live in more livable and more joyful. And um, I thought that revolution was like a really good um, sort of jumping off point for that, um, which is how the bio art coven manifesto ended up in the zine, which I was like super super pleased to, <laughs> to be able to publish that. Yeah, especially because um, the the BioArt Carbon Manifesto is like an evolving document. It's organic, it, it's it's uh, collaborative and it's always changing. So you, snake hair, you, uh, yeah, let's stop saying we, like you do 99.9% .9 of the work. <laughs> you <laughs> have captured it in a moment in time and published mm -hmm. that and I, and I love that. I love that idea. I love zines in general, um, distinct from magazines, because they, I, in my definition anyway, are, you know, underground, independent. As soon as you put a MAGA in front of it, and I go, whoa, I never put that together before. <laughs> but you put a MAGA in front of it, it changes the whole world. But to me, like zines are super magical, especially, I mean, you said you're almost 40, so you might have like a, a glancing memory of the time before the internet. Like that's how we got our underground information. That's how we got our, yeah. you know, outsider art. And, you know, we learned about punk bands mm -hmm. was through these like photocopied, yeah. so shitty, mm -hmm. like the shittier, the better. Mm, I can almost mm -hmm. smell the... <laughs> and they were often again at this at this intersection between poli sci and an mfa mm -hmm. they they really exist oh for sure of like making art out of politics so again like yeah. it, i don't think print will ever go away but i just really like want to like be an appreciation of your work with like material materials in addition to digital materials nothing against digital we love it mm -hmm. we're here for it this is the world but again, there's something political about even just using that word scene to like categorize what you do. No, for sure. It's also like thinking about like all of the hours that I spent as like a youth at Kinko's, like trying to like see how many copies I could have, I would have to pay for and how many I can get away with like not paying for. Uh, you know, like, yeah, but like that. It, it's, it is really interesting too, because there is such a, a supportive community for independent publishing too right now especially like um and I think that it may be the sort of something that's happened in the way that we and there's always been like communities of zine makers and independent publishers but I think the further like normal society I mean quotes like you know normal society gets the away from the physical and into the digital, the more important um, the the underground physical creation of things becomes. You know, like you think about we people think about technology as like this 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 thing that is just, just like exists. It's like the the ultimate archival thing, but in reality, like there are websites that like you you can't run anymore. But like the technology has outpaced it. 
but like we have books from 1487, you know, like, so there is this sort of longevity and this, there's something that, you know, like the physical zine, especially because it's usually made by someone who's telling their own story. It's published by someone who's like embedded in the community. It's not someone telling someone else's history. So the, there's something really important about that. And I think they're just so magical. Like they're just like, they're the best. They're super magical, like super magical. This is not the first time that I've, I've had a conversation with a zine maker about like the absolute high magic of zine making. I want to um, open the floor. I know um, Satleen is here and Mackenzie is here. Do either of you have a question that you want to pose to Vin? And in the meantime, um, I want to thank you, Vin, because uh, I was in conversation with White Feather Hunter and somehow it came to pass that I, I said, blessed fucking be, and I didn't think about it at all. And then you came <laughs> when we were, and you were like, I want to make a poster of this. Is that cool with you? And again, I'm like, I put three words together. I don't own those words at all. But um, I think the deal we struck that was like, you sent me a couple for our patrons so I could give them away. And this whole spirit uh-huh. of like, let's make things and give them away. And then this has sort of become like our unofficial motto. Bless the fucking be. <laughs> it's how we end every episode now. Bless the fucking be. I think it, it sort of like really encapsulates like, Yes, we we love love and light, but also like we love swears and you know yeah. <laughs> hate the patriarchy. <laughs> Listen, I was at the Upstate Art Book Fair this past weekend, and someone was going through our posters and laughed, and I was like, I'm always curious, like which one is it going to be? Because we have some that are like, <laughs> and it was the Blessed Fucking Bee poster, and he bought one, and I was like, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Spread the word, spreading the missing witches all over the, the world. <laughs> so again, thank you so much for that. I think, yeah, our, our coven here today just wants to give compliments and heart-shaped hearts. <laughs> so no questions, but I will have one final question for you. It's like, you are a messenger. What is your message today that you want to deliver to the missing witches coven? Ooh, I think maybe like, I tell this to my students all the time too, but I think it sort of, it applies here. It's like the, everyone is an artist, you know, like everyone has creative potential and everyone is also capable of making magic and don't let anybody scare you into not being the best and truest version of yourself I feel like that's (laughs) and I I love that instead of framing it like just be the best version of yourself you said don't let anybody scare you into not I mean, I think we're living in really scary times, you know, like we are, the world continues to get shittier and shittier. And scarier, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And scarier and scarier. And the only way that we, um, that people, that good people, I don't like the word good. That's a, that's a bad, that that (laughs) good is bad. (laughs) um, Is by 
clinging to each other and not letting the people who have all this power wield it against us to recognize how much power we have and figure out ways to wield it against them because they are the minority. I feel like it's Gorgon season. (laughs) 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 Mackenzie just couldn't resist. Mackenzie couldn't (laughs) resist. We started talking about Gorgons and then Mackenzie was like, I got to get in on this. Ken, do you have a question for Vin? Yeah, it's half a compliment and half an experience that I wanted to say because it's this conversation about materiality and the printing press is like, Ah, I'm fucking here for it. And recently, um, the local cultural museum where I am at put together a exhibit on witchcraft and um, witchcraft in the Middle Ages. And I was like, exciting. And I went and it was the most atrocious thing I've ever been to naturally. But they had on display in the middle, like the epicenter of the display was a a, an actual copy of the Maleficarum from mm. like an original printing from like the 1500s or something. Right. So just and to jump in really quickly, this was basically like a, a how-to witch hunting book from this mm-hmm. like original witch hunting era. For those of you who are listening, the Maleficus, Maleficarum, I, I always trip over that. But yes, carry on Mackenzie. And it was like lit and in a glass case, like given prime center stage in this horrendous display. And it had, I went up to it and looked into it and you could see the place where someone had handwritten notations into it and underlined sections. And I hexed the fuck out of that thing. Like I stood there and claimed space in this for like five whole minutes of people being like, what the fuck is this girl doing? Uh, I like sat there and like hexed over it. And I, it occurs to me that now through your work, there are all these little witches with all these little zines underlying shit and casting spells. (laughs) And that your reclamation of the printing press is like the ultimate counter hex. Uh, to the like the the founding the founding blood that was shed around this and I just I appreciate you for that I love all of your work thank you so much for what you do please oh respond God, please respond to the compliments <laughs> oh my God, thank you. I also love that what a great if I ever find myself in a, <laughs> in the presence of that book I will definitely follow your lead there will be some hexing going on yeah, hex the malefice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so again, I mean, I want to thank you for everything. <laughs> I want to thank you for your big Gorgon energy that I know is like extending to all of our coven and all of our listeners as they listen to you speak and and create and describe your process. I'm inspired. I hope all of you who are listening will start thinking about what weird outsider shit that you can make with the stuff you have around the house. (laughs) And I mean, as we end every episode in in large part to Vin themselves, (laughs) blessed fucking be. Blessed fucking be. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a joy. Thank you. You are joy incarnate and I can't wait to talk to you again. And I'm so looking forward to following 
all of the rad shit that you do. And again, listeners, just like don't let anyone scare you out of being the raddest possible version of yourself because there's no reason to be afraid. The power is ours. This blessed fucking be. <laughs> this gorgon power this is what i'm taking <laughs> away from today <laughs> go brush our, your snake hair or don't let it fly freely we love you <laughs> and bless the fucking beat you must be a witch join us and our amazing surprising missing witches coven at patreon.com slash missing witches